Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Turfgrass Epistemology, February 12th, 2024, the day after the Super Bowl. Hope everybody's doing well today. <clears throat> See, we already have a good group of people here today on the chat. Randy and Andrew, Brady, Super, Looney, Western. Welcome, everybody. <clears throat> Yeah, we're going to talk a little bit about foliar fertilization today. There's going to be a burn graph in here as well about carrier rates, carrier volumes. I don't know how relevant it's going to be for today's applications, but there will be some information on that about carrier volume and stabilized nitrogen and stuff like that. Um, yeah, birds, long care. <laughs> Sorry, I don't know if I recognize that handle, but welcome if this is your first time. I mean, he asks in the chat, will a cool season lawn look better on a liquid program, thicker, darker green with iron added, etc." cetera? Yeah, that, that sort of concept comes up occasionally, you know, liquid programs versus granular programs. I don't know if I've necessarily met or discussed that specifically you know, what differences or what, what I would recommend in terms of foliar versus granular applications or programs. I'm not sure if I've actually done that or not, but I can give you my opinion based upon my knowledge of the literature, but I don't know necessarily if it's going to translate into the, your specific situation. I don't, I don't know if you have bluegrass or fescue or whatever. Um, but my uh oh okay thanks thanks okay that's mitch bird okay yeah I, I, that's right i remember you now you have two handles i forgot thank you for reminding me but i i'm in my opinion um if i were to build a fertilizer program pretty much for i mean to some degree regardless of whether it's cool season or warm season the majority of nitrogen would be going down as granular. Now, my 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 criteria is produce the best quality turf for the least amount of money. So, if that's not your criteria, then it might differ. Um, or produce an acceptable quality, or maybe not best quality. Maybe that's not the right phrase, but the, an acceptable quality product for my for my uh, clientele for the least amount of money. To me. <laughs> the least cost. <laughs> so um, if that's the priority, if that's your criteria, then I would lean heavily upon granular nitrogen sources because they're almost in every scenario. Well, in every scenario, they're going to be least expensive. You can't put out foliar nitrogen less expensively than granular nitrogen. I'm not aware of a way to do that yet. Um, so if that's true, then granular nitrogen would be the way to, or the way to put on <clears throat> nitrogen would be through a granular form. And um, phosphorus, potassium, I would only put out when there's a deficiency. And if there was a deficiency, I would probably put that out as granular as well, because again, because of the cost and the response of the response. The cost of the response is most likely less expensive than a foliar program. But after those three, 
N, P, and K as granulars, I would I would use pretty much liquid for most everything else, which would only really include iron. Well, with the exception if you're doing pH adjustments, if for some reason you wanted to adjust pH, I would do that as a granular. But pretty much everything else would be liquid. But for the most part, everything else would just include iron. There's really not much value, and I don't have hardly any confidence in applying micronutrients except for iron and to some degree manganese. You're not going to see much response of anything to the macros of like calcium or magnesium and any of the micros like boron or zinc or anything like that. You're not going to really see much response to that at all except for in extremely unusual situations. So will a cool season long look better on a liquid program? I mean, it would look fine on a liquid program. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. It would it would be fine. It would just likely cost more money to do that. And I'm not talking, I, I don't, I'm not including <clears throat> the reality of business logistics. What I mean by that is if you're not going to go out and buy spreaders because you already have the spray equipment, well, then spray it out. I mean, you already have the spray equipment and, and vice versa. In other words, like the cost of the actual machines and the cost of logistically putting it out and all those things. If you have your program built in a certain way, then I don't know necessarily if I would sell the farm and buy all new equipment and put it out a different way. I don't know if I'd do that, but um, agronomically speaking is what I'm talking about. And then it's up to you all to figure out logistically what makes sense for your business in terms of finances. But agronomically, it's very difficult to beat a granular program of nitrogen and then only, <clears throat> excuse me, only apply phosphorus and potassium when it's deficient or when you've had a, a pre-existing condition of low phosphorus or low potassium, that would be a, a valid reason to put it out. And then pretty much everything else is foliar, but it would look fine as foliar. If you did everything foliar, it'd look fine. It just cost more. That's all. Well, Yeah, so Looney, what I'm what I mean by when I say is it acceptable, I mean is it acceptable to your clients? And that acceptable limit is going to likely change. You know, it's not the same from one house to the next. So when you say in the chat it says, I like that mindset of keeping costs low, but clients usually hire a company to get better than average results. Usually they want a nicer lawn than the neighbors. What I'm saying is whatever criteria that that client is expecting or whatever threshold of acceptable quality that that client is actually expecting, that's what I mean by acceptable turf grass. So I don't know. I don't even know if anybody knows every acceptable level of every client, you know. But if it's a six on the quality scale, scale, then it's a six. If it's a seven, it's a seven. I mean, you can go up the quality scale however far you want. And let's just pick a nine. Let's say that you'd say you had a max quality, 365 days of acceptable turf grass is one thing. 365 days of maxed um, turf grass is another thing. In both of those scenarios, it's extremely likely that they would both be achieved the least expensive manner through using granular nitrogen than foliar nitrogen. In both of those scenarios, and you can go back to the cost paper and look that up because it has in there not just the longevity, but the magnitude. So that paper I went over whenever it was last Wednesday morning has not just the longevity, but the magnitude. So the area under the curve is 
it, it accounts for both the magnitude and the longevity. And if, if that's your criteria, then you can use that metric to um, help make your decision for you. And in both of those cases, it ended up being urea. <laughs> and then ammonium sulfate. And if you want to use slow release, then sulfur-coated urea. So regardless, I mean, that's... I get that question a lot, foliar versus granular. I would just pick the least expensive option that's likely to result in whatever expected level of quality that your clientele is looking for. And in most cases, that's going to be granular urea and then probably granular P and K. I mean, you can make an argument to have some foliar in there with P and K, but um, that's what I would lean heavily on if cost was if cost to produce the result is is your criteria. Anyway, so um, today we're going to go over some Super Bowl stuff on ESPN. We're going to uh, show a video, and then we're going to go into an article. So this week is pretty much going to be about stabilized nitrogen. We have a foliar program today, an article today, that contains a, a stabilized nitrogen source called DCD. And I'm going to show a video for those people who are unfamiliar with stabilized nitrogen. Don't don't worry. I'll, there's a video online that I'm going to use that helps explain what it is. It's full of red herrings and flaws, but it has a great deal of um, fundamental or structural information in there that can help explain to you what is DCD and what is MBPT and what what is stabilized nitrogen and how does it function. So I'm going to show a video to explain that. But this week, Monday, see, yeah, all this week, I have stabilized nitrogen papers. I think I have like 15 or 20 stabilized nitrogen papers, but I'm only going to go over four. And before I even get going into the whole thing, I just want to mention that the brand names are one thing, Uflex and Umax, but there's a lot of different brand names. Um, but when I say that, I'm really speaking, if I happen to say Uflex or Umax, I'm just, mention, I'm just saying that because that happens to be the most common brand name. But I'm just speaking about stabilized nitrogen in general. It has nothing to do specifically with those brands per se. But I'll just say in general, so that we're not we're all on the same page, is that the U and we handed this. Doctor Soldat and myself had a conversation last Wednesday, I think it was, and we talked about this a little bit. And he and I seem to agree on this issue, and and that is the use of these stabilized nitrogen sources for in turf grass management. Is, is not really warranted financially. And it's barely warranted agronomically. It, only in extremely unusual circumstances would the use of a stabilized nitrogen source provide some agronomic advantage to you compared to just using straight urea or straight ammonium sulfate. So I want to make sure that's clear. I'm going to show three or four papers this week that more or less say that, but there is some literature in the late eighties and early nineties. There was some literature that came out that showed a little bit of advantage using those stabilized nitrogen sources compared to just using urea. So it does exist in literature that there can be a benefit, but the majority of the information that exists very clearly indicates that they're not financially uh, competitive with straight urea at all whether you just look at the cost per ton or look at the cost to produce the product, which is what one thing I showed last week on my paper. Very, very expensive. At least, in many cases, twice as expensive as urea per pound of N. Um, so they're very expensive. They don't provide much of a response difference from that 
which would have occurred from urea. Okay, so that's going to be the take-home message, basically, from stabilized nitrogen sources for this whole week, and I'm going to show some evidence for that. But I will, there's some papers from Jew in the late 80s and early 90s that do show a little bit of advantage here and there. So I'll make sure I'll show both sides, okay? But just understand one side is much, much he more heavily weighted than the other, okay? We have two or three papers that show an advantage and 15 or 20 that show basically nothing happens in, um, in, in, in terms of an advantage above urea, okay? Um, so just keep that in mind as we go through here. So Looney says, I like to use UMAX, which is MBT, MBPT and DCD, which is what is in this paper. Well, DCD is in this paper today. In with the weed control app, one spray pass does two treatments. Well, Looney, yeah, as you'll see, you'll see a response from, from the stabilized nitrogen sources, just like you'll see a response from urea. So um, let me get through this paper and then the next couple of papers. And then um, you can, again, you always make up your own decision financially, what makes the most sense for your business and your clients. I'll just say that the evidence to support the inclusion of stabilized nitrogen sources for turf grass management is pretty weak compared to urea. So when you, when, you, when you compare it apples to apples side by side, there's very little benefit above that from urea. Anyway, we'll get to it. Okay, so let's do the, uh, the let's, let me see if I can get to the, oops, that's not what I want. I want to get to, if I can get to it, you know, here we go. So let's see if I can get to this. Okay, so if you all remember last year, there was a lot of problems with the Super Bowl field. There was players were complaining about it after the after the game. They're sliding, slipping all over the place, and I never really uh, got much clarity from anybody as to what really happened or how did that occur. And one thing I found entertaining <laughs> this is kind of a, a unusual way of describing it, but I just found whatever fascinating is that before the Super Bowl, if you all remember, you can go back in the wayback machine and look at all these tweets. OSU, Oklahoma State University, which released the turf grass that was used in the Super Bowl last year, the field last year, was talking about all oh, the OSU's turf grass is going to be on the field. And I think even the president of the o, of Oklahoma State or the dean, I can't remember who it was, tweeted out, she tweeted out, oh, it's fantastic to have Oklahoma represented on the Super Bowl field. And then uh, <laughs> after the game, the game was just like awful in terms of traction. Players are changing their cleats, which is not uncommon, but they're still sliding all over the place. It was just not a, it was one of the worst fields in mo in the modern era to uh, have a have a game on, and it was on the the biggest you know football game in, in of the year. So it didn't bode well. And then after the game, a lot of those tweets disappeared. They were <laughs> they did, they got they deleted them off of Twitter. A lot of the social media that the people who were t you know from Oklahoma State that was talking about how good it was, they, those suddenly disappeared. And you can go pull those up in the in the Twitter machine and find those. I thought it was you know interesting. The reality is, is that there wasn't, there's nothing, I, I, my position was, I, there wasn't anything particularly wrong with the turf grass. The turf grass they use is fine. There must have been something else going on. And there must have been some other strange phenomenon or unusual management practice or something, who knows what. But the turf grass itself, it, it's used all over the NFL and in other locations, golf and so forth. And it, and it, it performs very well. So there was really no reason on the surface that the turf grass would be the culprit, okay? But it got a lot of flack. So I, I 
never really got a clarity as to really what was happening. I asked a few people and they, you know, I don't know if they're just being intentionally quiet about it or they just didn't know, but I never really got clarity on what exactly happened on the turf, on the football field, on the Super Bowl field last year. And there was a little, there's an article came out in ESPN a couple of days ago. And I don't know if it's true or not. I'm going to read it and then we can make, we can discuss it, but it provides a little bit of insight as to what may have happened last year. And I thought that was something I'd, I'd want to go over today. So let's look at it. So the title is on ESPN. This was posted on February 9th, last uh, Friday. Will the Las Vegas Super Bowl field hold up after NFL turf issues? Las Vegas, on January 9th, two days after the Las Vegas Raiders season finale at Allegiant Stadium, newly appointed NFL field director Nick Pappas posted a photo on X of the Raiders rollaway grass field being ripped up to make way for the one-time use field for Super Bowl, whatever that is, 53 or whatever, to 58. I always forget Roman noodles to be played 33 days later. So Nick, I, th- I know Nick, he, he I, I'm, if I'm not mistaken, he came down and helped me quite a bit in um, Fort Lauderdale. I think he was working for a sportsville company in Fort Lauderdale at the time. If I remember correctly, he came over when I was in, uh, doing my research down there. And I really think it was Nick that came by and helped out a few times. So he, I, he, uh, he's very knowledgeable and very, very good at what he does. And I guess he's running the show over there at the NFL field, field position, field director. In, 2000, uh, in 12 posts over the next 30 days, Pappas gave his followers a behind-the-scenes look at the installation and preparation for this year's Super Bowl field. He pulled back the curtain on how the grass was harvested, rolled up, and then laid out in a tray outside the stadium. Pappas shared photos of the field being lined and the logos painted. On Wednesday, he posted a video of the tray being rolled into the stadium. So if you don't know, Nick Pappas on Twitter. He's got a lot of really good um, marketing and, and press over this. And, um, and it's, you know, from my perspective, my interaction with Nick, he, he's, he deserves it. He's, he's a pretty good, uh, pretty good at what he does at Super Bowl, What is that? So 58 at state farm stadium in Glendale, Arizona, the NFL made green. So this was last year. The NFL greenskeeper available made the NFL made greenskeeper available to the media for interviews 12 days before kickoff this year until his Thursday meeting with media Pappas's Twitter feed had been the only window into the field. He was curated. He has curated. He hopes the field won't become the storyline as it did for Super Bowl 58 or 57. So, yeah, I mean, no one wanted that. You know, no one, the NFL didn't want that. The players didn't want the, no one wants the field to perform the way it did. That was, that was not, uh, it was the story of last year's Super Bowl. Everybody remembers it was awful. But no one wants that. The last season Super Bowl field prepared by former NFL field director Ed Mangan. Gave the Kansas City Chiefs and Philadelphia Eagles fits. Players slipped when they tried to cut as upturned divots dotted the field. Many, including Eagles quarterback Jalen Hurts, had changed their cleats. But that's not that uncommon. Players change cleats in the middle of the game all the time. So I don't know. I, mean, that, I, wouldn't get, I wasn't getting overly concerned about them changing their cleats. The issue was after they changed their cleats, they, it was still slipping all over the place. I'm not going to lie. It was the worst field I've ever played on Eagles outside linebacker, Hayson Reddick said after the game. This was last year. The problem, the problem resulted from the field's treatment in the weeks before the game. A source familiar with the process told ESPN, the NFL has declined multiple requests to address last year's issues publicly. Its only public comment was a statement issued after the game. The state farm field surface, stadium field surface, met the required standards for the maintenance of natural surfaces as per NFL policy. The natural grass surface was tested throughout Super Bowl week and was in compliance with all mandatory NFL practices. It's a very litigiously worded thing. <laughs> very careful about how they say things in that sentence, in that paragraph. The field system at Allegiant Stadium in Las Vegas ha- was modeled after the one in State Farm Stadium, Arizona. So for those of you who might be watching or listening who aren't familiar with how these work, 
these two stadiums have the field grown out. They're, they're, they're domed stadiums. So there's no natural light really that comes in. And, uh, well, that's not true. There's not enough natural light to grow grass inside those dome stadiums, but the field grows outside essentially in the parking lot and it's sitting on a, on a system that can be rolled into the stadium. So it's maintained and mowed and watered and fertilized and even painted. The first painting goes on outside the stadium. And then a few days before the, the game, they roll the whole field into the stadium and then it's able to be played on and they roll it back out. For those of you who might not be familiar with how the system works. So it was modeled after the Arizona field. The Las Vegas field is modeled after the Arizona field. Allegiant Stadium also has a grass field that sits on a tray that's rolled in for games and rolled out for maintenance, watering, and sun. How the field will hold up on, set, <clears throat> on Sunday at Allegiant Stadium is a major question. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, okay. It's a major question. And rightfully so. It's familiar to it's similar to last year's field. I'm sorry, I got like 15 things going on right now on my on my screen. I'm trying to keep up with everything. I apologize for trying to my my issues here. The tray containing the field remained outside during a rainstorm Monday during the opening night ceremonies inside Allegiant Stadium. It was uncovered during the day, exposed to elements, but by the time the event ended at after 8 p.m., it was covered by a tarp. So that was in Las Vegas. Grass does not love that, said said Pappas, who spoke to the media Thursday referencing the weight of the tarp along with the weight of the halftime show foot traffic being on top of the field for extended periods of time. The tray was brought in for a few hours Tuesday, Pappas said, for a halftime show rehearsals before going back out into the elements. It remained outdoors all day Wednesday before being brought in for good Thursday afternoon. So this this last year, or this just this last week, it stayed outside, and then it, it, it came in for good on Thursday afternoon, and of course the Super Bowl was on Sunday. It was covered with a tarp again, so Usher could practice for his halftime show to be removed at 7 p.m. Thursday after he was finished. We wanted to keep it outside for as long as possible, but Papa said, acknowledging that last year's field was brought in on Wednesday of Super Bowl week. Okay. I don't think that's necessarily the issue, but we're going to go into that. The next art, the next little part here talks about next last year's field. One key difference between the Arizona and Las Vegas systems is the Allegiant Stadium tray is equipped with heating coils. Grass in the desert goes dormant in the winter months, making it look like hay, a groundskeeper sor source told ESPN. Allegiant Stadium counters that by having heating coils in the tray to fool the grass into thinking it's still warm so it will keep growing. There were also large fans behind the team benches areas Thursday to better circulate air in the enclosed stadium. So that was smart. Whoever came up with that, <laughs> you know, grass doesn't like, um, stagnant wind, stagnant air. Okay. We, and even, even believe it or not, spray equipment. We don't like it when the air is, when there's, when there's no wind. That's how we have these temperature inversions happen out in, in fields where there's, when there's zero wind. There's no air movement at all. Grass doesn't like that. Plants generally don't like that at all for disease, for spray equipment, for temperature inversions, for humidity, for disease and so forth. There needs to be some air movement. Okay. And so they put some, some fans behind the team benches inside the stadium to keep continue to help with the air. And they may have done that in the past too. I don't know, but they did that this year. Asked whether last year's Arizona experience was a factor in moving the field in made of Tifway 2 Bermuda grass from Central California. 
indoors a day later, Jeff Miller, NFL Executive Vice President of Communications, Public Affairs, and Policy, said he wasn't sure whether there was a co- connection. I, I don't know either. Maybe I should get Nick on here and talk to him and see what, and see what decisions made, if he's, if he's capable of talking about that. I don't know. But the reality is there was nothing wrong with the turf itself, the grass from last year. They could have used the exact same turf this year and probably been just fine. It has to do with the post hoc ergo propter hoc issue where you say, well, this happened, there, this happened, we used this grass and this happened and there was a problem, so we're not going to use that grass again. Well, it could have happened with any grass. In reality, the way they managed it, which we'll get into in a minute, it probably would have happened with any grass. <laughs> it just so happened to be the grass from Oklahoma State. I don't know if I have, I don't have my OSU shirt on. So I graduated from Oklahoma State for those who don't know. And um, if there's one place, there's two places I would live if I lived in Oklahoma. One would be Tulsa and one would be Stillwater, just so everybody knows. I'm, a, I'm an OSU fan. <laughs> Asked whether, and I might live in Tahlequah for reasons that we'll, I'll probably will never go into. For those people who might know where Tahlequah, Oklahoma is, it's a very pleasant place. I have fond memories of that place. So Tulsa, Tahlequah, or Stillwater, that's where I'd probably live if I lived in Oklahoma. Asked whether last year's Arizona experience was a factor in moving the field. Oh, I already said that. He wasn't sure where the connection. Okay. When there's, when they're moving it out there during the course of the game week. They want to make sure it's getting some sunlight, Miller said Thursday. So it lives outside oftentimes in the morning. The rain over the last couple of days has affected how they've chosen to treat it. They obviously want to be careful around halftime rehearsals and stuff and stuff to make sure that they have time to remediate the field after people have been running up and back on it. Running up and back on it. So it performs as well as it can. So that was last year's. So basically, they took it in on Thursday this year. For anybody that follows Nick, um, you know, you caught up with that on Twitter. He was doing a pretty good job talking, you know, talking about what he's doing and what were they, what they were doing and so forth. They kept it out, they slid it in, they pulled it back out, they're mowing it, they're painting it, they're watering it, and so forth outside. And they put it on Thursday. Okay. So now let's see what happened last year. I'm, re- I'm mentioning this. I'm not, it's really not funny because it's awful what happened, but it, there's some insight as to what potentially happened. And it may not have happened. I don't know. I'm just reading what, what ESPN has here. And it looks like some insider whistleblower kind of t- said, gave them an idea of what happened. And whether or not it did happen, I don't know. But we're going to read it here. Last year's Super Bowl field s- strand was chosen by Megan, who had, oh, that means just the turf grass used was chosen by Mangan, who had worked with field with the field at 35 Super Bowls. Tahoma 31 is Bermuda Hybrid, uh, overseeded with rye. Create, and that's going to be key. So Bermuda Hybrid, overseeded with rye. Tahoma 31 is not that. Tahoma 31 is a Bermuda Hybrid, okay? It's just Bermuda. And then rye is a separate issue, okay? They act like Tahoma 31 is Bermuda grass with rye in it. It's not the case. With rye created at Oklahoma State University. The USGA funded its creation, and the strand has become popular with NFL and Major League Baseball teams as well as golf course across the country. It was developed to withstand cold, drought, disease, and wear and recovery and wear and recovery well from traffic. All reasons Megan chose it. And to be frank, I probably would have been fine with it too. I mean, <laughs> Tahoma, Latitude, Tiffway, Tiff Tough, all those, all those grasses are have unique characteristics but all of them probably would have been fine i mean you know in terms of the turf itself it's not the turf in my opinion what is that resulted in the problems okay it's how they managed it 
The Chiefs and Eagles both have Tahoma 31 in their stadiums, as do the Rose Bowl, Los Angeles Coliseum, Dodger Stadium, Angel Stadium, and Soldier Field, among others. So you're up in Chicago with this thing, all the way down to Los Angeles with the same grass. Okay, so it works. Not an issue with the turf, the Bermuda grass, you know, cultivar itself. One decision, however, changed the course of how the field played last year. Okay, so here's a little bit of the insight. And you all probably knew this. I didn't know it until I read this. About five days before the game, the field at State Farm Stadium in Arizona was rolled in, which is way longer than it was supposed to be in there, according to a source familiar with the process. So I don't know who this source is. But it sounds like they got some anonymous tipster or something that, that talked to ESPN when they probably shouldn't have been. I don't know. But familiar with the process this source was. There are two primary reasons for the early arrival. Number one was that rehearsals for the national anthem, Rihanna's halftime show, and other game time entertainment could take place on the field. So that was the one, first reason it went in early, which is fine. And I wouldn't even say it's early. It just went in on the day it went in. Wednesday, I guess it was. And then number two was so temporary stands and suites could be built on the south end of the stadium after the sod was rolled in. So they had two logistical reasons why they had to have the field in. They needed one to have have a, a Rihanna do her halftime practices. And then one, they needed to build some temporary stands around. And they needed the field in there to do that. So makes sense to me. But right before the Super Bowl field was rolled in, Mangan's team watered it, which is not uncommon. Multiple source, multiple sources said immediately the groundskeeper who were Greek groundskeepers who were helping prepare the field knew it was a bad decision. So let me just say something here. I don't think that that's true. If it, one, if the groundskeepers knew it was a bad decision, I don't know who was maintaining the field down there. Why didn't they say something? Why didn't they talk to Mangan? Or maybe they did and he didn't listen. I don't know. But if you know it's a bad decision, speak up at the time. Don't wait until after people are slipping and sliding all their place and it looks horrible on TV and everybody gets a bad rap for it. Okay. I mean, if you know it's a bad decision, tell them. Say, hey, there's too much water on this field. And maybe they did do that. You know, maybe the groundskeeper was, you know, barking at him saying, hey, you're putting too much water in and he ignored it. I don't know what happened. But I'm not convinced that the groundskeepers knew immediately that it was a bad decision. It's very common to water these fields before they go in because they're not going to have any water or any sunlight. Well, they're going to have any application of water or any sunlight to the degree you need to once that, once that field rolls in underneath that stadium for the next four, three or four days. There's not going to be any sunlight or any applications of water while it's inside. So they water it before it goes in. I think the issue that they're saying is they watered it too much. Okay, it got put inside the stadium way too early and it was soaking effing wet. <laughs> it was literally, that's what it says in here, soaking effing wet when it went in there. One source familiar with the process said, and once it got in there, it couldn't breathe. It was musty in there. It stunk. And yeah, it was disgusting. So it sounds to me that what happened was. Let me just actually, you know, let me finish this and I'll tell you what it sounds to me like. There's only two more th paragraphs. The field was covered with a tarp, which had the lines of a field painted on it. So the show could show could rehearse and hit their hit their marks for about eight hours a day. The source said once and then Yang Shi says once the ride gets wet, it becomes exceedingly slippery. So Yang Shi, no offense to Yang Shi, I love you, but you're trying to deflect there. I don't think it had anything to do with the rye grass. 
He's trying to deflect it from the turf grass that he developed onto the ryegrass that they oversee to the end of the Bermuda. I don't think that's necessarily what was happening. One, I don't know, okay, and I don't think he knows. I think what happened was, whether it was Tahoma or whether it was, was Latitude or whether it was Tiffway or Tiff Tough or whatever, they overseeded it with rye and then they soaked it with water, okay? And because of that, it was the excessive amount of water that resulted in probably some rot or decay of the grass. Okay. And it says down here, the last thing it says, it was, it was taking a beating and it was dead by game time. The source said it was an ice skating rink. Okay. So when that grass or any grass starts to rot or decay, there's going to be some exudation of the sap and the internal cell constituents that are very, very slimy to say, you know, for lack of a better word. And when that happens and anybody who's done any greenhouse research and overwatered your pots or left for the weekend and left the irrigation running and you go back in, you see all that slime on that surface of the soil or slime on that turf grass in those pots. For this, I'm talking about research here. And you know you messed up and you got to start over. That sounds to me like that's what happened on that field is that they overwatered it or they put whatever the case is, they put something over it after they watered it after it was inside and, it's, and it kept it moist and it was the ideal kit conditions. For some decay to start and some for some putrefaction to occur, to begin occurring and all these things and then once that starts and those cells start breaking open you start exposing that sap internal cells uh, liquid into the onto the leaf surface or onto the soil that is really slippery so if that's what's happened and if you know all this is true what this anonymous source is saying if that's actually what occurred in my opinion that's very likely why. It was so um, unplayable, and it didn't have anything to do with the Bermuda. It probably didn't even have anything to do with the rye. It had to do with the way they were managed, and an unfortunate amount of water, and series of unfortunate situations occurred all in line with each other, and there was some rot, and that's why it started getting slippery, in my, in my opinion. Not knowing much more about it, but that's, that's what I think could have very likely happened. So I thought that was interesting. Of course, yesterday, the field last night was fine. And I had, there was no reason to believe it wouldn't be fine. Okay. If they had left that outside and then it just rained, and it did rain in Las Vegas, and it just poured buckets on there and it just soaked it wet. And then you put a tarp on it and roll it inside, it probably would have happened the same way. You know, like I said before, water, light, and temperature. If you're looking for turf grass problems, and again, I don't know, I wasn't there, but if you're looking to diagnose turf grass problems, what the, what's the first thing I recommend people start with? And that is water. And, right, and that's what this, what this article says, is that there was too much water put on last year's field. So if all that's true, it makes total sense to me that too much water, and I've said before, it's, not off, it's oftentimes not En- not enough water. It's usually too much water is the problem with, t- with uh, turf grass related problems to water. It's usually too much water. Okay. And in this case, this anonymous, anonymous source is claiming that it was too much water. It stunk. It was soaking effing wet. <laughs> and it was disgusting when it went in there. So if you're smelling something stinking and rotten, there's a very good chance that that's what it was. Okay, you're creating basically a petri dish 
for disease and and rot, you know, to occur. Okay. All right. So the next thing I'm going to show is a brief video, and then I'll get into the article. Connecticut. Maybe if, there, if there's a way, I don't want to mispronounce your name, Connecticut Cubanican. I don't. I don't. I feel awkward trying to pronounce your last the last word on your handle. I don't want to continue to mispronounce it, but I'm I'm pronouncing it Cubanican, but it's also Cubanican. So I don't know if you like that was. <laughs> I don't know exactly how you want me to pronounce that last word there on your handle, Connecticut Cubanican. But if you can let me know, I'll feel better that I'm not mispronouncing your name. Uh, you said, I think the lawn care nut is listening to the research. He hired some scholars and they were on his latest live show. Oh, really? Promoting more organics and less malorganic. Oh, really? <laughs> they're, they're reading the wrong papers. So they're promoting organics and less malorganized. So I guess that's for the phosphorus. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I saw a, a video. Actually, I haven't even got through it all the way because it just makes me sick to my stomach even watching it. But I saw a video with the lawn care nut talking to, um, he had two guys on there about soil testing. They were soil testing and spreading all sorts of um, completely erroneous and flawed misinformation about these, um, these resin beads for soil testing. And I'm going to go into that with, in, in, to a great extent. I'm going to go into that a lot whenever I do get into soil testing. And I'll just say this, is that the, the most reliable and consistent method to predict whether or not the soil has sufficient nutrients, the most reliable is the extraction with usually an acid, but it can be another, another, several other extractants. But even those methods are not as... I'm not as confident with those methods as, as you might think. I'm confident with phosphorus for the, uh, to a great extent, but not so much with potassium and magnesium and some of these other elements. And those are the ones we have the best confidence with. So when you take that to another level, when you're dealing with the ion resins and exchange resins and so forth, my confidence drops through the floor. Okay, it doesn't matter how many marketing sheets they have and how many they sell what matters is whether or not they have a correlation between the value that they take off of that bead and a turf grass response to that element and i can say with a fair amount of confidence that there is virtually no information no evidence for that and what i mean by evidence is published inf published results in a refereed reputable turf grass journal there is some for nitrates on these resin beads and on cool season grasses, Dr. Gillard's published a fair amount of work on that in New England. So there is some there. There's a little bit there. But when it comes to all these other elements and iron and potassium and phosphorus and all these other things, all of that may be absolutely correct. But I have zero confidence in essentially zero confidence in that it's correct. And there's really no reason why you should follow any fertilizer recommendation from a, an ion exchange resin test other than in some specific situations, like I said, with nitrate, there is a little bit there up in, up in new England. And the, I guess it's UMass. I can't even remember where Dr. Gillard is emeritus from, but, um, 
so there's a little bit there but yeah i saw a video with him long hair nut and these two guys on there and i haven't even made my way through the whole thing yet i have to pause it and it drives me insane and what bothers me is so many people are being fooled and and um taken advantage of to use these tests and they end up spreading all this fertilizer out there that they don't need to and there's a connection between that soil test and the products that they sell which is whatever it's capitalism do whatever you want but there's just not a lot of evidence there and, and i don't have any good reason to believe what they're saying is true and neither should you so i'll get into that though i haven't seen the one when you're talking about he hired some scholars and <laughs> i haven't seen that one i don't know organics and less malorgan i don't know um yeah millorganite is uh useful when phosphorus deficiencies exist but other than that there's really no reason to apply it in my view you can cause a lot of problems potential problems i should say if you're applying all the millorganite that he says to throw down for however many years he's been saying to throw it down when you don't have a phosphorus deficiency that's a big problem and um to be frank i would look into it if i was the state regulation state agency uh, looking into him, you know, his impact on phosphorus loading in soils and so forth, if I were them, but whatever. Anyway, anyway, so let me get to the, let me go to the video. I might have to fix my screen here because this is a little bit different of a uh, setting here. If I can get it on the screen. So we're going to talk about uh, re uh, reacted ureas. Oh, I'm sorry, not reacted ureas, uh, stabilized nitrogen sources. And before we get there, I want to make sure that everybody kind of understands the basics, okay? There's a lot of um, information here that is is uh, flawed. There's a lot of, there's several red herrings in this one. They're trying to distract you away from the actual reason why you'd want to apply it. But they do explain it, what happens, and more or less how the uh, uh, stabilized nitrogen sources function. What's the intent behind it? And there's quite a bit of evidence to support some of it and very little evidence to support the other parts of it. And I'll explain that. But I'm going to go through. It's only three minutes long. I would like to play the whole thing just to make sure everybody understands for the next several episodes we're going to be, what, what we're going to be talking about. Okay. Stabilized nitrogen sources. Now, let me get back to this and then I'll do this. Okay. And. Okay. Here we go. Urea has been a nitrogen source in fertilizers for decades. To optimize its performance and minimize potential losses to the environment, the need to responsibly manage its use is essential. To get this done, let's first take a look at some of the challenges that need to be overcome. Non-amended urea begins to break down and release nitrogen as soon as it comes into contact with moisture in the soil environment. If it is not watered in soon after application, some of the nitrogen will be lost to the atmosphere through volatilization. Nitrogen not lost to volatilization moves into the soil as ammonium. Below the soil surface, microbial activity converts ammonium into nitrate. Since nitrate is negatively charged, it doesn't bond with the soil. So with irrigation or rainfall events, it can leach out of the root zone along with the water. Under wet conditions, soil bacteria can convert nitrate into several nitrogenous gases, and the nitrogen is lost to the atmosphere. One way to reduce these losses is to amend urea with inhibitors. This creates an Enhanced Efficiency Fertilizer, or EEF, that stabilizes nitrogen, which provides solutions to manage these challenges. 
The most effective way to do this is with dual inhibitors that work both on and below the soil surface. On the soil surface, a nitrogen source with a urease inhibitor, such as NBPT, limits the process of volatilization, which is the conversion of urea to ammonia gas. Even if irrigation or rainfall is delayed, more of the nitrogen has time to make its way into the soil, reducing the potential for loss. Adding a nitrification inhibitor, such as DCD, slows the conversion of ammonium to nitrate below the soil surface. This extends the time nitrogen is available in the ammonium form, so more can be taken up and used by the turf grass. This helps to minimize denitrification and leaching. EEFs that incorporate dual instead of single inhibitors are proven to be the most effective in allowing time for nutrients to move into the root zone and stay there longer. They also provide these unique advantages, readily available for quick greenup and a turf grass response of up to 12 weeks. Depend so just so we're clear here is that um, what they're saying is mostly accurate in terms of the mechanism of what this is doing. This is from Allied Nutrients, by the way, their, their YouTube channel. So the... Uh, I'll explain a little bit further when it's going in, but he says 12 weeks of extended release. This is sort of the, um, I don't know, I can't remember the name of this flaw, but they're saying this product will last, because they have this nitrification and, and urease inhibitor, denitrification and urease inhibitor in there, the response will last for up to 12 weeks. That's not accurate. The response will last for up to 12 weeks without it. In other words, it's not lasting 12 weeks because it's in there, because these additives are in there. It's lasting 12 weeks because urea will last, the turf grass response to urea will last 12 weeks. And that, that study I did a couple uh, last week or whatever I showed, where I'm applying urea at one pound and two pounds, and I'm waiting for four months, and then I applied it again, and waited for four months, and applied it again, waited for four months. So I have a four-month gap, a 120-day gap between, so a 16-week gap, basically between applications and the nitrogen didn't the nitrogen from urea the turf response from urea didn't last the entire 16 weeks but it lasted a very long time and it was equivalent to all the other nitrogen sources so i want to make sure we're clear is that this is an example of how you can be easily fooled when you go oh it'll last 12 weeks yeah okay i should get this product i should use uflex and umax and i should use this dcd and the mbpt i should use this because i need a 12-week release i'm not going to come back to my next client or you know i'm on a 12-week cycle or i'm not going to come back to that fairway i'm not going to reapply it i'm not going to go back to the football field for you know three months or four months i should i should include this in my fertilizer what i'm <laughs> trying to say is that it might actually result in turf grass response for 12 weeks but that turf grass response is likely to occur from urea anyway and the results from last last week's paper showed that and the results from all these papers that i'm going to show this week are going to show that the response is going to be equivalent to what would occur from just straight urea anyway. There are some papers, like I said, in the late 80s and early 90s that showed a little bit of advantage in terms of uptake of in, a little bit of advantage in terms of quality of response from from um, from these uh, stabilized urea source, stabilized nitrogen sources. There's a little bit in there, so you know it, it does exist, but. The majority is exactly what I just said. You're going to get that same response. Whatever you're going to get from this, you're probably going to get from urea anyway. That's the way to look at it. And it's going to cost about two times as much money from using these products compared to urea. I'm not saying you're going to get a reduction in price of your bag because you might not be 
pricing your bag right. You might not be getting the, the salesman to, you know, <laughs> understand and get the price down, but you can't have urea cost equal to or greater than these products. It's all, these products are always going to be more expensive because you're adding a component to it. And in general, it's around two times more expensive. So if urea is $600 a ton, this is going to be around $1,100 or $1,200 a ton. It's not 5% more, 10% more, half of 50% more. It's usually around two times greater than urea. All right, let's finish this off and then I'll come back. Talk about stable performance across varying soil and weather conditions. Since granular stabilized nitrogen is water soluble, it is equally effective when spread dry or dissolved in a spray tank, and it is compatible with most spray tank inputs. When you use stabilized nitrogen fertilizers with dual inhibitors and enhanced efficiency technology, nitrogen stays available to the plant longer, allowing for more nutrient uptake. See that sounds that sounds convincing. Stays available for the plant longer and allowing for more nutrient. It's, it, it, it does sound like a good story. I'll, I'll admit it does sound that sound good. But when we go out and we measure it, and we go out and we actually account for everything, we balance everything out, and then we see, you know, we measure what happens to the turf in terms of growth, in terms of quality, in terms of uptake, all these other things. The advantage is usually none. Usually there's no advantage at all in turf grass systems. But when there is an advantage, which is rare, the amount that you're gaining is nowhere remotely close to the additional cost that you're spending, the money that you're spending on it. It's nowhere near that. Okay. So the argument is, it could be made, just like I said last week, let's say you get another 10% uptake or 10% better quality from this product when you apply a pound of N from urea and the costs whatever it is, $2 a pound of in. Well, you, pound, you applied a pound for $2. So $2. And you get 10, let's say you get 10% better uptake or whatever, the, whatever metric you want to use. Well, urea costs 63 cents per pound or whatever, a dollar. Let's say it costs a dollar per pound of in. Just add in 10% more nitrogen from urea. So now it's a dollar and 10 cents rather than $2. That's sort of some basic fundamental understanding. It's not, it's not all there and all the information is there you need to know, but that general concept is what I'm going for here. What, what really is the evidence indicates we should follow. This helps you get the most out of your nutrition investment while minimizing potential losses to the environment. So he said nutrition investment. That's the reason I showed this. So he's thinking they're talking about being the nutrients is an investment and it is an investment. And what I'm saying is I want something in return for my investment. And I'm not going to get back anywhere remotely close back to what I spent. You know, in other words, when you look at the whole program, you're going to lose money, basically, by spending more of it on these sorts of programs in, in the majority of cases. Okay. You're not going to, your, pro, your margin is going to be reduced because your expenses went up using a product like this rather than just using straight urea in most cases. That's not only better for the turf grass and your bottom line, it's a better way to fertilize. Yeah, no, it's not. <laughs> I mean, you can say that, but it's, as far as the, the evidence, there's not a lot of evidence to support that or saying it's a better way to fertilize. So it's better for, it says it's a better investment. It's better for your bottom line. It's a better way to fertilize. So that's all, those are all claims that they're making on a marketing and what I'm asking for. How do you know it's true? Because when you look in the literature, you just don't see much to support that. And so that's what we're going to go over this week, okay? As I'm an hour into the show already and I haven't even got to the article, we're going to go, we're going to go over that this week. 
Okay, so the next four episodes are going to be all about that. I wanted to make sure that everybody's on the same page that what what exactly we're talking about, and um, you know, when I when I talk about stabilized nitrogen sources, that's what I mean. So let's get into it before I get too far. I gotta, <laughs> I can't be here all day. All right, so let's go to. Uh, let me go back to this. Hang on. So the PDF. Okay. So the title for today's top paper is Evaluation of Liquid Applied Nitrogen Fertilizers on Kentucky Bluegrass Turf. They're going to talk about a variety of different nitrogen sources. They're going to have a couple different projects in here looking at responses, but they're also going to be looking at burn as well. So there's one a small little section in here about likelihood of burn or uh, the burn potential um, based upon the carrier volume. And don't get your hopes up too high. The carrier volumes in this study, this was done in 1986, aren't exactly what we would use today, but fair enough. I mean, that's all they got. Whoops. That's what we got. Okay. So this was published in Agronomy Journal in 1986 by Spangleberg, Fermanian, and Werner. I don't know these first two authors. I heard Werner many times, but I don't know the first two authors. Um, anyway, let's let's get going okay so i've highlighted a lot of the information in here i'm just gonna have to go through it i'll go through it as quick as i can and then i'm going to show some of the results in a pd in a powerpoint presentation that makes it a little clearer lawn care professionals make three to five applications of fertilizer to a home lawn during the year because the customer satisfaction depends on a noticeable turf grass response to the applied treatment the lawn hang on let me fix that color the lawn uh, care companies generally use quick-release nitrogen sources because of its low cost, high water solubility, and relatively low salt burn or salt index compared to other soluble in sources. Urea is the predominant nitrogen source used by this industry. Urea is applied either as a spray with water or in a granular form. During certain times of the year, turf response to urea can dissipate before the next application of fertilizer can be made. Also, there is a potential for foliar burn because of the wide range of environmental conditions encountered in the scheduling in scheduling multiple applications to a large customer base. So I think that's a pretty good s setting. In other words, the authors have done a pretty, they have a general, this was 1986, but generally that holds true today. So they're, they have a pretty good argument to say, this is why we need to look into this particular topic. And I keep hitting the wrong button here. Uh, okay, alternative nitrogen sources have been developed for use by lawn care companies that apply fertilizer as a spray solution in attempts to overcome the drawbacks of urea. So we're talking about spraying it out that won't burn and, and they'll extend the longevity. These include a suspension nitrogen source called Fluff and a solution nitrogen source called Formalene. Now, these two products probably aren't around anymore, but the, the, um, the I think actually they're around, but in a different name probably. So there's a suspension of the nitrogen particles. Uh, so it's a, it's a granular, I guess you could call it that, but it's so small it'll go through screens. And it's a, so it's a suspension. And then there's also solution nitrogen that has some carb. They'll talk about it has some urea formaldehyde bonded onto there. So it's still a solution, but it lower, the idea is that it would lower the burn potential. Both materials are manufactured by reacting urea with formaldehyde, just like UF or MU. But the reaction conditions are such that only a small amount, 3.6% of water insoluble nitrogen is contained in the fluff and no water insoluble is in the formalene. Nitroform, which is 3800, the first urea form fertilizer developed for turf grass contains 27% water insoluble nitrogen. So basically what I just said, they've reacted it with urea, urea formaldehyde to bond a little bit on there to make it a little less burn. 
the sol- the solution one is 100% soluble and the the suspension one is only mildly insoluble there's only 3.6% that's water insoluble a strategy to extend the response uh there's a strategy to to extend the response period of a quick release fertilizer is to combine the nitrogen source with the nitrification inhibitor so here comes the DCD which is what the which is one component of the dual uh, stabilized nitrogen products there have been reports on the efficacy of nitrification inhibitors nitropyrin and tetrazol terazol sorry in crop situations but less is known regarding the response of turfgrass to nitrogen sources treated with nitrification inhibitors waddington found no significant advantage from the inclusion of nitropyrin with liquid applications of a 2013 16.6 soluble end source so i think we went over this waddington paper there was no advantage to including that uh, oh no that was his thesis I think this was Waddington's thesis or, or dissertation that they're citing here. And he, he, they didn't find any advantage in using these compounds in turf grasses. But there have been clear cases of the advantage in terms of yield, crop yield, and, and crop settings. Let me get through the introduction and I'll see if I can remember to come back and talk about this paragraph. Dicyandiamide is a nitrification inhibitor that is 66% nitrogen and breaks down in the soil to form ammonia and carbon dioxide. Landshut, who's up at Penn State, I just talked about his paper last week, reported a little benefit. Reported little benefit from including DCD with ammonium sulfate applications to Kentucky bluegrass in Pennsylvania. He evaluated color and turf fertilization with two pounds of nitrogen in the form of seven ammonium sulfate DCD combinations, in which in which form zero to one hundred percent of the nitrogen as DCD. So this this Peter did his work up there, and he found there really wasn't any advantage um, to including DCD with ammonium sulfate ranging from 0 to 100% of the nitrogen from the DCD. The primary objective of this, re- of this research, the primary objectives were to evaluate the response of a Kentucky bluegrass to applications of solution and suspension nitrogen sources alone or in combination with urea by comparison to responses from applications of standard fertilizers. And then two, the second objective was to compare the burn potential of these new fertilize- fertilizers to that of spray applied urea. So you, when you see U.S., it's going to stand for urea spray in this in this study for the rest of the, the day. You're going to see U.S. a lot. That's urea spray. And then urea ammonium nitrate, so UAN. So they're using urea, straight soluble spray-grade urea, and they're using UAN along with some granular fertilizers. And they can compare that with urea and ammonium sulfate com- using DCD. Uh, okay, and a liquid 12, whatever, I don't know what this is in English units, 12, to five or something like that fertilizer. A secondary objective of this research was to compare turf response to the applications of ammonium sulfate and urea with and without a portion of the nitrogen coming from DCD. Okay, so I wanted to talk about this this paragraph up here. We're talking about uh, agriculture versus uh, agriculture responses versus what Peter. Uh, well, no, I'm sorry, what Waddington found when he didn't find any response, any benefit, and then also Peter didn't find any benefit as well. So, in turf grass situations. In most, well, in every turf grass situation, except, I mean, as long as it's an established turf, you're going to have a, a quantity of roots that is probably superior to any plant on the, on the planet, okay? You have roots, literally, it's a carpet of roots and shoots. And when you apply nitrogen sources like this, there's really no place that the nitrogen is going to land that is not going to at some point be in contact with the roots as opposed to row crops where they're applying nitrogen in a band or they're applying it broadcast however they're applying it and the root 
system in those row crops is not like the root system in turfgrass systems, where there's a much greater probability of having the nitrogen enter the soil and not be in a location where it might encounter a root. Okay. In addition, which is actually more important than that, in addition, in many turfgrass systems, there is water applied, with the exception of pretty much the entire state of Kentucky. <laughs> there's, um, there's very few turfgrass lawns in Kentucky that have irrigation. The, the newer ones do, but the older ones don't. Um, but when, when you're applying turf, uh, a, a urea to a lawn that, that has irrigation, if you apply just a little bit of irrigation, a tenth of an inch or you know, maybe a quarter of an inch, not even that much, it's going to move that urea down into the soil and pretty much, gr well, greatly reduce volatilization and gaseous loss. It's going to greatly reduce that. And it moved it down into a system that is just saturated with roots, roots everywhere. When you're in ag, you're banding this out there, or in some cases, you might be spreading it out there, but you don't have irrigation out there. You got to rely upon rainfall. Sometimes you have center pivots or you have these, you know, have other options occasionally. But in many cases, you don't have anywhere near the ability to control water as you do in lawn settings. And so, for that reason, when you include a, a product, that is intended to reduce the gaseous loss, you include the product into a lawn where you probably don't really have a lot of gaseous loss because there's moisture in the soil, you're applying a little bit of water, you're not going to see a benefit to it. Okay, but in ag, we do. There's, there's clearly crop yield data that shows that the use of these compounds can be beneficial in, in ag settings, okay? But not in lawns. In lawns, it's different. In, in fairways, it's different. Sport turf, it doesn't, doesn't work usually. Usually, you don't see much benefit to this at all. And that's generally wise because of the water. We're able to better manage water in lawns than we are in ag. Okay, back to the paper. Materials and methods. This research was initiated in 1981 on established turf consisting of a blend of Columbia and touchdown Kentucky bluegrass. This was located in the Ornamental Horticulture Research Center in Urbana, Illinois. I don't see a lot of research coming out of Illinois nowadays in the last several years, but they did a lot of good work in the 80s and 90s. There's a lot of stuff went out from Illinois. Sorry for anybody that's Illinois, maybe I'm wrong, I'm just not up to date with the literature from Illinois, I don't see a lot, but back then there was a lot coming out. All treatments were applied at a rate of four pounds of nitrogen split into four applications, except for sulfur coat, which was applied twice during the growing season. Rates and timings were similar to standard practices in the professional lawn care. So the solubles or the sprays were going out at four pounds a year, four applications, it was one pound per application, and then the sulfur coat went out at the beginning, at two pounds and in the middle of the summer at two pounds. Liquid treatments were applied using a CO2 backpack pressure sprayer, da da da. With, and here's the carry volume of this. This is not the carry volume study, but this, uh, the carry volume they used here was 175 gallons per acre to apply the liquids. <laughs> 16, 1,629 liters per hectare. Can you imagine going out with a carry volume of 175 gallons per acre? You <coughs> couldn't even carry that much water. So anyway, the volumes nowadays are 40 or less usually. I mean, you know, for foliar applications. For liquid applications, you want them 80 to 100, but they're at 175 gallons per acre here. So I wanted to make sure that was clear. The following fertilizers were applied in the study. The fluff, which was the, the suspension. Remember, that's the, that's the spray suspension nitrogen. 
Oh, it says right here, suspension fertilizer consisting of low molecular weight, water-soluble, and water-insoluble urea formaldehyde. Okay. Formalene, which is a nitrogen solution. Okay. And then it had formalene acidified with phosphoric acid. There's another treatment. I'm not going to go into every single treatment because it has a bunch of them on here. But I'm going to explain what basically what they used. Nitroform, powdered urea form, which is probably the, 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 the uh, powder blue product that you're probably familiar with today. It was a, applied as a suspension. Urea, the 4600, applied as either a granular or a spray. UAN, urea ammonium nitrate, just ammonium nitrate, just ammonium sulfate, ammonium sulfate with DCD, sulfur-coated urea, granular urea with DCD. Additional treatments consist of urea combined with some of the other end sources. Okay. Turf grass response evaluated including turf color and fresh clipping weights. Soil pH and thatch accumulation were also made. I'm not going to talk about thatch. We can, you know. <laughs> I'm tired of doing that. We did that a month ago. Go back and look at the playlist if you want to know about that. Turf color was visually rated on 1 to 9. On alternative mowings in 1981 and 1982, the growth rate of turf was evaluated by collecting clippings from, a, from an area of the plot. Clippings were returned to respective plots after weighing. Oh, I highlighted that because I never see that in science. Uh, this is, so at basically what the, what, he's, what the authors are saying is they return the clippings but they even returned the clippings after they weighed them back onto the plot that they took them from, which, you know, that's an interesting way to do it. I, I, I don't do that, but it makes sense if you're going to return the clippings, go back. If you're not going to analyze the clippings, you're just going to weigh them, go back and put them back out in the plots. Yeah, I've never saw that in the literature where someone did that. That was the reason I highlighted it. Treatment means were evaluated for each date using planned single degree of freedom contrast as indicated in Table 2. Now, the reason I highlighted that is you're going to see in this paper some old school statistics, okay? Hang on, let me get a drink. Now, back in the day, there was, there, there was this statistical purist perspective of statistics where you could only make as many comparisons as your degrees of freedom. So let's say you had four treatments, you had three degrees of freedom. You can only make three comparisons, but you have four treatments. So you can't make every possible combination of those because it's more than three, okay? Nowadays, the statisticians uh, overwhelmingly agree that you can make multiple comparisons, as I do, with the glimmix procedures and all sorts of various ways to do this. But back then, they were very strict, which is fine, no problem. I'm just, but you're going to see statistics in a, displayed in a way that is very different probably than what you're used to. Um, but it doesn't mean it's wrong. In fact, it probably means it's more accurate than the other way. At least it's more, I think it's more conservative, but somebody, a statistician said, no, it's more, more liberal. I'm like, okay, well, whatever. It seems to me like I'm less likely of being wrong doing it this way, but you know, I'm not a statistician. So, but anyway, I mentioned that because single degree, single degree or orthogonal contrasts are um, not really needed nowadays, but back then they were. So I'm just be prepared. You're going to see some things that are a bit different than you're used to. And, the, and the, now here's the carrier rate study. <clears throat> A separate experiment was conducted to determine the burn potential of formalene. Remember, formalene was the solution urea formaldehyde and fluff, which was the suspension urea formaldehyde in comparison to urea, urea ammonium nitrate, and a liquid 12 to 5 fertilizer, urea ammonium polyphosphate potassium chloride fertilizer. All fertilizers were applied at a rate of one pound of nitrogen per thousand. Okay, and I'm going to talk about the carrier volumes in a minute. 
the fertilizers were applied on May 1, or basically the 1st of May, the end of June, the end of July, or the middle of October 1982 to an area adjacent to the first experiment using a randomized complete block design. Okay, so that's all, that's all the uh, materials and methods. So we'll make sure we're, 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 what we're going over. We're in the early 1980s, 1981, 82, and 83. We're in Illinois. We have a field study where we're looking at a lot of sprayed uh, nitrogen sources, including a nitrogen stabilizer on urea and ammonium sulfate. And we, we include just urea and just ammonium sulfate as well. We also included a suspension, and they also included a solution nitrogen source. That was one study. Uh, directly adjacent to it, they applied some of these solution and, and saw, uh, suspension products with DCD. Actually, did they do DCD on this one? <clears throat> no, they didn't do DCD on the burn. They just did the solution and the suspension compared to just urea or, or just uh, urea ammonium nitrate. Okay, so we're going to see some burn, but really it's not so much the, well, there is the products, but it's also just the carrier volume that I'm interested in that, and that you might be interested in. Okay, so the results. I'm most likely just going to show the results in the table format for the most part, and then there's a figure. I'm not going to read through it. I just highlight some to make sure I don't forget. Okay, so the results so table two for those listening i'll do my best summary of sing single degree of freedom contrast i'll do my best to explain what i'm what i'm looking at here and, and showing to the audience for those who might not be watching it this is for kentucky bluegrass fertilized with various nitrogen sources for three years i personally like the way that they did this this is very different than what you might be used to but i like it because it contextualizes everything very very well all right what we see here is several columns. We see treatment one, we have all the, all the products, and we have treatment two, which is all the other products. And then there's treatment one versus treatment two. So you'll see column one versus column two. That's the single degree con, uh, uh, contrast. And then over here, you'll see color ratings and clipping weights. And when you see one is greater than two, what that means is, is that column one was greater than column two. Then you'll see two is greater than one, which means obviously the opposite. Two was greater than one in that particular, um, for that rating. And then you'll see one equal to two, means they're both the same. So this is the number of color ratings. So for, let's just say row number one has ammonium sulfate. Then it has ammonium sulfate plus the stabilized component, the DCD. And we see that ammonium sulfate in, resulted in greater color ratings on seven occasions compared to ammonium sulfate with DCD. Then the next column is when was, when was two greater than one? We see that ammonium sulfate resulted in one color rating that was greater than ammonium sulfate on, on just one time. Okay, There was just one occurrence where DCD applied with ammonium sulfate resulted in a color rating greater than just ammonium sulfate alone. Then we see one equals two in 28 ratings, it was the same. So on 28 occasions, there was no difference. On seven occasions, ammonium sulfate was greater than DCD. And only on one occasion was ammonium sulfate with DCD greater than just ammonium sulfate. Okay. So out of, I don't know how they, they usually, I think they had 46 ratings, but they don't have 46 ratings on every single time. So in this particular, uh, in this particular row, they have 36 ratings 
So out of 36 ratings, 35, there was either no difference or ammonium sulfate without DCD was the better option on 35 out of 36 ratings. Okay, so that's DCD with ammonium sulfate. But one can argue, well, it's ammonium sulfate. What happens with urea, right? Okay, well, let's look what happened with urea. When you have urea in DCD, two occasions urea was greater than urea with DCD. Five occasions urea with DCD was greater in terms of color than just urea alone. And 39 occasions they were the same on color. So 41 out of 46 ratings, there was either no difference or ammonia or urea was greater than urea with DCD. What is that percentage? So if you're going to spend money on DCD with urea, the, on, on Kentucky bluegrass in Illinois, what's the chances of seeing a response? Hang on, 46. What am I doing around here? Five? You have a point one. Wait, that'd be 10%. So you have a 10% chance of, of, re, of resulting in a response greater than just applying urea alone. 10% chance. Color. So 90% of the time in this study, either there was no difference or urea was better in color. When you look at clipping volumes, or clip, I'm sorry, clipping weight, <clears throat> the urea, which is right over here, the clipping weights were the same. All 19 clipping events, there was no difference between urea and urea with DCD. So the growth didn't change. When it used ammonium sulfate, ammonium sulfate actually resulted in five occasions where the, the growth rate was greater. Ure ammonium sulfate with DCD never resulted in a situation where the growth rate was greater. And 14 of the time, 14 occasions, they were the same. So if you're working for DCD numbers, <laughs> to support your, your, your usage of it. There's not much in this paper at all, okay? Whether it was color or whether it was clipping weights, the use of DCD was not beneficial except for in like 10% of the time with color on with urea. Oh, I'm so sorry. I'll go back. I'm, thanks, thanks, guys. I am... <laughs> I'll do it again. I'm so sorry. Thanks, thanks, you guys. I, I am so out of it. I wonder how long I was talking. <laughs> I'm completely incompetent when it comes to this stuff. I'll go back again. So sulfur code urea. We're looking at sulfur, <laughs> sulfur code urea and urea. For those of you who don't remember, for the, for, your, for the people who are new here, I once did an entire episode with no live broadcast whatsoever. I was watching the chat and I wasn't even broadcasting live. I did an hour with no, nothing live. And then later I was like, what happened? And then they said, oh, you weren't on. And I had to redo the whole thing. I was there for an hour talking to no one. <laughs> so five minutes of no volume is actually, I'm actually doing better than I used to do. So anyway, so sulfur-coated urea. We want to talk about sulfur-coated urea compared to urea. I've, I've mentioned before, like I said, the, the, the idea is that I want to apply sulfur coat because 
the I want greater longevity or I want greater response from my in my turf grass compared to just urea. I'm not going to get that longevity. But when you look at the data in the in the literature, there's that's not a whole lot there. There's a little bit here and there, but not much. And it certainly doesn't usually justify the additional cost using sulfur coat compared to urea. Okay, I don't know if I'm going over the same thing I went over a minute ago, but um, that but uh anyway, so ten times out of out of whatever that is. 10 times sulfur coat was greater than urea, 12 times urea was greater, greater than sulfur coat, and 14 times nothing happened. There was no difference between the two. So you're looking at 26, 36 times. So, so hang on. So the, let me look at this. 14 plus 12. So 26 times out of 36, either nothing, there was no difference, or urea was greater. And only 10 times out of 30. So you got a lot, a 27% chance that sulfur coat would result in a greater response under these conditions. And then you look at the clipping weights. Sulfur coat resulted in greater clipping weights than urea four times. Urea did it, uh, resulted in greater than sulfur coat three times. And then 12 times there was no difference. So, the, so the, what I'm getting at here is that the majority of cases, there's no difference between these two, these sources, sulfur coat or urea. So just use urea. There's no diff there's majority cases, there's no difference between urea and urea with DCD. So just use the least expensive option, which is urea. Ammonium sulfate versus ammonium sulfate with DCD. Majority cases, there's no difference. So just go with the least expensive option, which is ammonium sulfate. That's the reason I like this particular table, even though it's a very peculiar way to look at it. You may not be used to it. I do like this. Ure urea liquid versus urea granular. So if you're looking for liquid versus granular, uh, approaches the question in the early part of the episode was uh, you know straight liquid products well, what what would be better here's here's one of the answers right here urea liquid versus urea granular and we see zero times did the urea liquid result in a color greater than urea granular and the urea granular resulted in a greater color 12 times over that of urea so 12 times there was urea granular resulted in turf grass is greater than straight liquid urea. And then 24 times there was no difference. <clears throat> so in order for me to be convinced to, to spend greater money on urea uh, soluble, soluble or spray grade, I would need to see a substantial number here in this column where the liquid was greater than the granular. And what, there's zero here. Well, what number would convince me? Well, I don't know, but it would need to be greater than the granular. So this is 12. It need to be uh, whatever, greater than 12. So I at least have some reasonable confidence 50% of the time, maybe 60% of the time, you know, we're maybe good to go. But right now it's 0% of the time in this particular study did urea liquid result in a, in a greater quality than urea granular. And you see the same thing in clipping weights, which is more objective, where there was no time where urea soluble resulted in greater growth than urea granular. There was three times where urea granular resulted in greater growth than urea soluble, and then 16 times there was no difference. So when there's no difference, or the granular is greater than the, the liquid, what, what that's saying is either nothing happened or the granular was better. I mean, it's pretty straightforward when it comes to the difference between liquid versus granular, straight the same source, urea. Now, if you want to start comparing the uh, urea liquids versus all these sorts of so, uh, solutions. So this is, remember, this is, well, nitroform is the powder blue. 
the fluff is the suspension, and then the formalin is the soluble or the solution nitrogen sources. So these three here are all, you're still spraying them out. They're just a little bit of a different formulation compared to just straight urea liquid, okay? Just 100% liquid. That's the least expensive option if you're going to do liquid. And let's see what happened then. So with fluff, which was the suspension, it was split. Four times it was greater, four times urea liquid was greater, and 38 times nothing was different. So think about that, guys. So 42 times out of 46, either urea liquid, nothing differed, or it was greater. So 91% of the time, you're going to be spending less money using your urea liquid then if you if you go with urea liquid, you're gonna 91% of the time you're gonna have equal or greater turf quality if you go with urea liquid, which is the least expensive between those two sources, urea liquid and fluff. If you go to urea liquid versus nitroform, which was the I believe that's the powder blue product, it's also about split nine times powder. I I won't say powder blue because I don't know if it's that, but nitro nine times nitroform was greater than urea liquid. 10 times urea liquid was greater than nitroform, and 27 times there was no difference. So 37 times there was no difference or urea liquid was greater. Again, the odds favor urea liquid. Formalin, which was, I think this is more like a Coron type product. The whole thing was um, solution nitrogen. There was four times where the formalin, which was the solution nitrogen, was greater than urea liquid, and no times were urea liquid greater than formalin. So it never resulted in a greater response from formalin. However, 42 times <coughs> 42 times there were no difference. So you got what do you got a 10 10% chance? You got a you got a 9% chance of seeing a return on your investment if you use a product like formalin or coron. Nine, 90% of the time you're not going to see, well there's a 90% chance you're not going to see any any additional advantage to using that product compared to just, just using straight urea liquid. I'm going to have to get a lotion. Hang on one second. Sorry, once I start talking so long my throat starts getting difficult for me to speak. And then there's a nitroform and sulfur coated urea. These are, this is the powder blue, I think, or the, the suspension. And then this is just sulfur coat granular. And you see that sulfur coat granular resulted in 16 times it was greater than the powder blue. And only one time was powder blue greater than sulfur coat. And 21%, 21 times, there were no differences. So this is a very important table. I'm sorry I screwed it up with no volume early on, guys. But I really encourage you all to consider looking at stuff like this, this table, where you're looking at what is the, it greatly contextualizes the results. In terms of what's what's really can I yeah what's really going on what's my chances of seeing a better response am I going to spend this much money on something am I going to get much return for it and in most cases we're seeing urea liquid is the way to go I don't even see a case on here where urea liquid wouldn't be the option to go with it's it's substantially uh, you know substantial evidence to stay with urea liquid if you're going to do a liquid. And stay with urea granular if you're vacillating between urea granular or urea liquid. Which one should I do? That's this column, or that's this row right here. Right there. That's the column you want to look at. Urea granular versus urea liquid. And I know, guys, you say, well, 
I've been doing this for a long time and I, I see a better response and da, 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 da. Hey, I'm not there. I'm not there looking at your turf. Maybe you do see a better response. Maybe you don't. I don't know. All I can go by is what's in the, what's in the literature if I want to have greater confidence in what's actually likely to occur. Doesn't mean it's going to occur every time. But if this paper says it, and another paper says it, and another paper says it, and my paper says it, and it just keeps going on and on and on, we start to build confidence that that decision is likely the most effective or efficient decision for your program. Okay, it doesn't, it doesn't mean it will be. It, like we, all, we could always be wrong. But I have a great deal of confidence in, paper, in, in that recommendation of granular applied urea, not just from my paper, not just from this paper, but from many, many papers. Okay, let's get to, now let me go to the, <clears throat> let me go down here and I'm going to come back to the burn. This table right here, table four is the burn table and my voice is starting to go, so I'm going to have to be quick here. <clears throat> down here, you'll see the color. We're looking at four, four graphs for those listening. The x-axis is months. And the x-axis is months. And the y-axis is color, 1981, 1982. April, June, July, August, September, October. So that's how it looks. And on the top graph, we see urea versus the suspension urea. I'm sorry, the suspension urea from aldehyde. And this, it's hard to see. These old, these old figures, they had to do um, by hand or by an early computer program to make these figures. So sometimes it's not easy to see which one's which. But you can see the urea was well above seven for a long time. The turf grass was well above seven and the, the suspension one was not above seven or it was above six, but it wasn't above seven until after the, the first application in June and then it stayed above you know, seven for quite a while. So there was some fluctuation, but both of these resulted in acceptable turf grass. The SCU, we see it fluctuate early on in June and then it starts to level off and you start to see very, very consistent. This is what we'd like to see from every slow release source. There's a very consistent longevity of this curve. Whereas with nitroform or fluff, we see this up and down movement, relatively inconsistent, but acceptable. <clears throat> the color of seven would be very fine. So this is what you'd expect to see from uh, this. Remember, the sulfur coat was applied twice two pounds in June and then two pounds around this point here in July or August, I mean. And then you see the same result results down below with urea and fluff in 1982, where you see a great deal of fluctuation from both sources. Both are probably acceptable. And then the SCU fluff and nitroform in 1982 is nowhere near the response we see in 1981. We see SCU go up and then it doesn't stay up. It goes back down and then comes back up very late in the season in 1982. So you don't see this plateauing of color that we saw in nineteen eighty one. We don't see that in 1982 which is yet another reason why I do not recommend going out and doing your own research. Because you go out and do your own research and you see, okay, well, I, I didn't see anything happen from SCU. Well, you might it just happen to hit it in the wrong year or in the wrong conditions. Or I didn't see anything happen from urea. Well, you might have just hit it in the wrong time. though. The, 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 condition, the conditions align just right. And that product didn't work that year. We do this all the time. We do many studies and some of them are just complete flops because some strange thing happened that we couldn't account for and we have to restart it over you can't count the number of times that's happened with pesticide pesticide products where it should control it and it doesn't or it, you know it shouldn't control it and it did there's all sorts of strange things happen so you go out and do your own research and you don't know how to account for these things you, you can be convinced 
that it works, or you can be convinced that it didn't work when in fact it was some other factor. And I want to make sure people understand that before you go out and do your own research. Okay, I'm going to show the burn using a um, using this figure. So the burn, I can get this up. Okay, the burn study. Remember, it only contained this this blended soluble product, the twelve two five, whatever it was, and, and then it used urea, urea ammonium nitrate, and formalin. And then this was remember this was the solution, and then the fluff was the suspension. But look at the carrier volumes: forty four gallons per acre, eighty eight gallons per acre, or one hundred and twenty gallons per acre. So what this is showing, or I think what the intention was, is to show that carrier volume matters. When they applied it at 44 gallons per acre, we saw about 6% foliar burn from this blended 12 to 5, whatever, and about 6 or 8% from the urea. And then the urea ammonium nitrate, look at urea ammonium nitrate. We're looking at 15, 16% burn from urea ammonium nitrate. So there is a difference in these sources, depending on what source you're spraying out. And when you increase the, and then the formula, the form, formalin and the fluff, which are the suspension and the soluble of uh, the solution, urea formaldehydes, there is essentially no burn from those products. So that would be a good reason to include products like that if that is your priority. To say, hey, I don't want to have any burn at all. I got a new employee or I'm, I'm new. I don't know what I'm doing. And I, I want to make sure that I'm, not, I'm at least not going to burn my customer's lawn, then that would be a, a valid reason to include the additional expense to include a solution or suspension spray product because you are going to greatly reduce the probability of burning the turf grass when you use those products. Okay, and that's what this shows. I'm not going to worry about this blended one, but urea and urea ammonium nitrate, you can see that as we increase the volume carrier volume from 44 to 88, we don't really see a whole lot happen. If anything, we see an increase using ammonium nitrate. But when you go up to 120, where we're really putting out a lot of carrier volume, you see this reduction in burn from urea, and you see a huge reduction in burn from your, the urea ammonium nitrate. Okay, so carrier volume does matter when it comes to the likelihood of burning the turf. But keep in mind, I don't know how many people are going out on 120 gallons per acre. We're, as an industry, I would say we're generally trying to go the opposite direction. We're trying to figure out how to apply the product with less volume. But I would say one key factor in that is to be aware that the probability of burn is there when you're going out at these very, very low volumes particularly if you're going out at a high rate of nitrogen at a low volume, the probability exists to, to burn the grass, tip burn the grass at these very, very low volumes when you're doing foliar applications. These were liquid applications, so the intent is to actually spray it out and have it wash off the leaf at that, that high of a carrier volume. Okay. All right, we're going to get to the last part here in the discussion, and then, and then uh, there's only two or three paragraphs I want to talk about, and then we'll be done. The differences between the urea spray grade and the fluff and the nitroform in our research were minimal despite the fact that they represent a range from no water insoluble nitrogen to 20 and 66% of the total nitrogen as water insoluble respectively. Landshut, using these same sources in a field study in Pennsylvania found considerable differences in turf grass color due to the treatments. 
Out of 44 rating dates, urea-treated turf grass rated significantly higher than the fluff-treated turf on 18 dates and significantly higher for nitroform-treated turf on 36 dates. Landshut sprayed applied the fertilizer in the same manner that we did, but made two applications per year at two pounds of nitrogen rather than four applications at one pound of nitrogen. Thus, the differences in initial color between the two urea spray treatments and turf and turf receiving the other treatments would be expected to be greater. In other words, Landshut went out at a higher rate with one app, and these guys went out with uh, lower application rates, but they did, they did the applications more frequently, and they just saw differences between those two studies. The sulfur coat treatment was applied two times per year at a rate of two pounds and has been done by other researchers, and that's these, the Hummel and the Landshut paper. I don't know if I think we went over. If we didn't, I'll go over this, this Hummel and Waddington paper. The superior color ratings from this fertilizer may have been due to this specific application rate. So in other words, they went out at two pounds and they saw a difference and that might be necessary. Now, nowadays, and especially in places like Florida, where we have these environmentalists who don't know science from a hole in the ground and they go in there and they get the ear of these politicians, they start changing policies and making policies. Politicians will say, well, I have to do something. I have to make I have to make some decision. And they end up making a decision based upon no evidence. And they lower the maximum rate down to like one pound, which was the case in Florida for a while. And then we got to go back and see, tell them, hey, you, you know, this is there's no science to back this up. Some of these slow release materials actually require a higher rate in order to take advantage of their characteristics. And in this case, the sulfur coat went out at two pounds. And if you went out at a lower rate, you might not see the same result. You need to get out. You need to get the the pounds on the ground high enough so that the slow release that's being released each day or each week is su- sufficient to meet the turf demand for it. And so, there's a reason why we need to keep the rates um, dependent upon the source, not just uniformly say across the board in the whole state of Florida you can only apply one pound in per application if you're lawn care. Or 0.7 soluble if you're lawn care, whatever the case is down there now. Some of the slow release materials can be more efficient in terms of environmental impact, but they got to go out at a little higher rate in order to get the turf response. Anyway, based on the research, based on our research, oh wait, yeah, based on our research, the most significant advantage of using either formalin or fluff is the reduced potential for foliar burn, which is what we showed. The lack of response to DCD. Which is the or the denitrification inhibitor, the, the component they add to urea and to ammonium sulfate to enhance the efficiency. That's what it's referred to, or stabilize the nitrogen. The lack of response to DCD may have resulted from the excellent nutrient holding capacity of the Catlin soil. Nelson and Huber have indicated that in crop situations where nutrient loss is not a problem. There have not been yield responses to nitropyrin, which is another denitrification inhibitor. Okay, so basically what they're saying is DCD, we didn't have much happen there, and it may have just been due to the nutrients in the soil. I would say that was probably a good postulation back then, but I would, but nowadays I think the majority of scientists in this field would say that the lack of response to these stabilized nitrogen sources is probably a result of the soil turf grass system itself is just vastly different from row crops. And because of the management practices that we usually engage in in turf grass science, being 
usually watering it in, extensive root systems, you know, moisture in that soil because there's a covering of turf grass and so forth. We just don't see much advantage to including it. At least this paper didn't at all. The advantage to the inclusion of slow-release solubles or slow-release spray grade like the, the suspension or the solution did not occur in the turf. It occurred from reducing the burn. Okay. So, sum this whole thing up. There was little to no evidence to include DCD to urea. Virtually no evidence to include DCD to ammonium sulfate. The turf, the color was either equivalent or greater when it was not included the majority of the time. When it came to granular versus soluble or spray grade urea, the spray grade urea never resulted in a response greater than granular urea. The majority of the time, there was no differences. When there were differences, it was because the granular urea resulted in a greater response than the foliar urea, the, the liquid urea, I should say. Okay. When it came to the liquid applications, if you say, you know what, I got that, Travis, but I'm an all-liquid person. Okay, no problem. If you're considering using the solution uh, urea forms, urea formaldehydes, or the suspension urea formaldehydes, or the nitroform urea formaldehyde, the suspension products, in your foliar program, <clears throat> this in table two showed that the use of just straight urea liquid was most likely the way to go because the inclusion of the suspension or solution slow release nitrogen either did not either did not result in an increase or was equivalent to just straight urea in the vast majority of cases i think there was about 10 to 20 percent of the time the inclusion of the solution and suspension slow release nitrogen sources resulted in greater response about 10 or 20 percent of the time so about 80% of the time, there would be no advantage to augmenting your urea liquid with some other slow-release nitrogen source in it. So that's sort of the summarization of, of this study, okay? I think that's all I wanted to go over in that. Okay, sorry about the volume problems and the, and the microphone problem. That's all I got <clears throat> for today. I may have an author on this week. I'm working on that. Um, I'll be working around his schedule. If, if he's able to come on this week, I'll, I'll work around his schedule. Otherwise it'll just, it'll be me. We'll be talking about, um, stabilized nitrogen sources for the remainder of the week. I'm going to leave you with a little music. I had, um, had someone mention they missed having the music at the end of the show. So I'm going to throw in some more music. I'm a little surprised no one's caught onto this, uh, particular band. I mean, they're not known, but I think, yeah, I would think Shazam could pick it up, but Maybe not. I don't know. Maybe they just, I'm, I'm, they've got to be able to pick it up. Anyway, if you want to know who this band is, just ask me and I'll tell you. It doesn't bother me any, but um, apparently Shazam's having problems with it. Uh, guys, I'll be back tomorrow morning at 10 a.m. Until then, be kind. I'll see you tomorrow. Bye.